see. The Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs and rats and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. Die because of what they have planned and done and am about to come and gather the people of all the nations and languages and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish and to the Libyans and the Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece and to the distant lands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels, and I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die, the fire that burns will not be quenched, and they will be lonesome, loathsome to all mankind. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as you engage us with these challenging words of the great prophet Isaiah, we pray that we can have a better understanding of who you are and who we are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we are uh, glad that you are here today. Let me just fix this. I know, sorry, my OCD just went a little bizarre when I came up there. Just, is that hiding? Okay, everybody doing okay? Congratulations, you have braved the MTA in a, on a snowy New York day. We are glad that you are here again. You guys are funny, by the way. I just, I was in the back just laughing because that was the most dance-inspiring song that we could have possibly articulated or, or come up with, and you all were just... <laughs> and I know what you were thinking to yourself, I'm Adventist. I cannot move. Um, you were very stiff as a people. I get it. I am, I am chronically stiff, but it was pretty funny still because Nick and the team were doing the best they could to get some kind of life out of you. It's cold outside. We needed you to move. Anyway, for those who are not Avenist, you know the, the Avenist deal. Like Avenist, many of us grew up not moving at all. So anyway, Nick, you did your best. You did your best. And team, let's give you a... And then how about that text today? Isaiah 66, the end of the book of Isaiah. Can I tell you, I'm going to confess something to you. I am in a, a, a group that is, is trying to coordinate uh, sermon topics over a year. 
And so we got together in California last year and we orchestrated this. And I did not come up with the idea of Isaiah 66. I'm just going to, I mean, this is a challenging text. Did you guys hear what I read? Did anyone hear that? Anyway, so the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about the book of Isaiah. And ironically, we're starting in the end of, of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. Next week, Nick is going to be sharing with us, then Lincoln, and then I'll wrap up. Uh, three weeks from now with the last of Isaiah. Anyway, Isaiah 66. I mean, what is there to say? The Lord is coming with fire and with chariots like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people. And many will be those slain by the Lord. The imagery here is of God in a chariot who comes sweeping on, on the scene in a whirlwind to bring justice. And he has rebuke on his mind. He's going to rebuke and he's going to bring justice. And he is angry, the text says. He is angry. It's dramatic and disturbing. Well, who is going to face this judgment, you might ask? Well, the text is very clear. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens... Bible students have wrestled with the implication of what this is saying. And the idea is something along the lines of this, that uh, there were those who acted as if they were part of God's people. In other words, they aligned themselves uh, by, by word with God's people, but then they had their own kind of religious thing going on on the side. And so they consecrate and purify themselves. There's important context to that idea and they go into the gardens and if you were to go into the gardens it usually meant that you were going to go and bow down to false idols and so you're going to go with someone who does detestable things and you're going to worship other things even though you were kind of aligning yourself with God's people and it says this makes God angry and that he's going to bring judgment and he's going to bring rebuke over these people who consecrate and purify themselves supposedly then verse 19 i will set a sign among you i will send some of those who survived to the nations to tarshish to the libyans to the Lydians. and so the idea is that not everybody obviously is going to be in this camp of people who are about false religion or for false idols but i'm going to send the people who survive out and they're going to go into all the nations and they're going to proclaim the glory of God, and then people are going to come back from all over the world, and some of them are going to be uh, priests. They're going to be uh, people and leaders for God. Now, this had to be some surprising for the, the original hearers of this, the idea that there were going to be people from other places in the world who were going to be a part of God's chosen people, and were even going to be priests and Levites, and so this idea of inclusiveness. So you've got these two things going on here. You have a God who is angry, and he's bringing rebuke, and he's coming in judgment, but he's also being inclusive and including people from all over the world to be a part of his people, and then he's even going to uh, use them as, as, as priests and uh, Levites. And then we get this promise in verse 22, as the new heavens and the new earth that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so your name and descendants will endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me says the Lord. And so you have a promise. So this is a weird text. I mean, there's a lot going on. Again, it's the end of Isaiah, which is a complex um, a book of the Bible. And here we have this message of rebuke 
and, and justice and judgment and anger, but also a promise that God has people who he is going to make sure that they uh, endure. Now, I think the most dramatic element of this text is the, and there's so many, but the idea that God is angry and he's going to come to judge people. Now, this is not an uncommon theme, certainly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, the idea that God has a plan for judgment and he's He's ticked off. He's, he's upset about things. And so in Revelation chapter 19, we read again. Uh, this is the end of the Bible. So we have the end of I, the book of Isaiah. Now at the end of the, the Bible in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, it says, and this is the, the apostle John who hung out with Jesus. And he's writing what he sees in vision. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice he judges and wages war. Again, this is kind of, a, of an angry scene, of, or of a violent scene at least. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. Again, there's violence here. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So again, this idea of a God who is about judgment, who is about uh, justice, and who is angry. Which leads us to a question, what is it, I, I, I don't know, I'm assuming here a little bit that, that this may make you a little bit uncomfortable, and that assumption uh, is not just out of nowhere. I mean, the reality is we don't read these passages very often. In fact, were I not uh, a part of a group who was going through the book of Isaiah, I probably would not have come to you with Isaiah 66, and so I'm thankful that I am, in essence, forced to bring this to you, because this is a challenging text that I probably not would not have brought on my own. But here's this reality of an angry God. And so I had to ask myself, what is it, what is it that makes me uncomfortable with the idea of an angry God? What is it that makes you uncomfortable with the idea of an angry uh, God? I think there are a couple of responses uh, to this. I have a couple that I've thought about. There are many, probably. I have a couple that I've thought of for you here today. First of all, I would suggest to you that uh, uh, you and I it's likely have a platonic idea of emotions. So the ancient Greek philosopher uh, Plato was profoundly influential on Western thought, as you probably know. And uh, one of his main contributions was the idea of dualism, which we talked about uh, last week or two weeks ago. You can go to avonhope.org and figure out if it was last week or two weeks ago. But uh, dualism is, is the idea that uh, every person is really made up of two uh, parts. There is the, the soul, which is eternal, which is incorruptible, which, uh, which is, 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 is special in a very unique way. And then there is the body, and the body is corruptible. Uh, the body is not eternal. The, the body is obviously limited in, in time. And so these two are separate things. This is the platonic idea, this dualism, that they, and, and that they can even exist uh, distinctly from each other. And so 
parts of the body are things like the emotions. Emotions belong to the division of the body because they identified that when you have emotions, things like sorrow or, or sadness, that your body reacts to that. It has tears. Or when you get angry, you get, you get hot. And each of the emotions has a reaction in the body. And so it was thought that emotions are, are a part of the body. And if the body is kind of evil and it's corruptible, that it's, it's a weakness. It's something that we need to avoid. And so this idea that emotion, including anger, is really a part of this sinful body. And, you know, if only we could just have our mind that's pure and, and, and is eternal, then we, that's what we need to, to focus on. And so that this was part of, of Greek philosophy that penetrated the early church. I mean, you know the, the story, the, uh, the Christian church that grew out of the, that small Jerusalem movement became increasingly influential over the second and third century and was particularly influential in the Greek world. And so while the Christian teaching influenced the Greek world, Christianity was also influenced by the Greek. And a Plato, the Platonic idea of dualism was an important part of that. And there's a lot of implications to dualism that we can talk about another time, or you can go back last week and see one of the other implications of dualism. Anyway, this idea that emotions are somehow bad or they're part of the weakness or they're part of the, the human uh, body and they're different than the soul. Uh, this has given us all the, the understanding that our emotions are a weakness and therefore anger is also weakness because anger is, is an emotion. But the truth is that emotions don't come from a weakness and rather they are a strength. I mean, you think about uh, joy, uh, love, even liking things. First of all, these are, those particular are thought of as great Christian traits. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, I mean, love is at the top of the list of things that God does inside of a person uh, when, when he starts working in, in a person. But uh, truthfully, even anger, even a sadness. I mean, in Jesus' most famous uh, sermon, he talks about those who are sad as being blessed. Um, and even this idea of anger. The anger is not something that is a bat, and it's not something that it's a weakness. In fact, uh, anger is incredibly important. You know, we think sometimes that the, uh, the opposite of love is anger, but that's not true. The opposite of love is apathy, is not caring. I mean, if you, if you have love, you are going to get angry at certain circumstances and things. If you see someone that you care about who is being mistreated, if you're apathetic about that, there, there's a problem. But if you get angry, then it shows how much you care about, about something. I mean, getting angry is an important response in the right context. I have my paper here. I mean, if you don't, when you get, I don't know, nobody gets the paper anymore. I still love the paper for some reason. I'm not that old. But somehow, I, I mean, I was at, at, a coffee shop the other day and I was there and there was a guy sitting to me and I was reading this and he was like 75 and he turned to me and he said I thought your generation didn't do that anymore <laughs> and we embraced and had a moment and then ended up talking about how I was reading the paper the actual paper anyway if I when I read this I don't know about you and you do it on your device or whatever I get angry do you ever read the paper and get angry I mean look at this clashes erupt as aid trickles into Venezuela. You, you heard this story, right? So 
international community is sending aid to Venezuela, but because of the political circumstances at the border, a lot of that aid is being held up. And so there are people who are hurting and in need and dying for the aid that has been sent there and is being kept at the border and not distributed because of for political reasons. That makes me angry. Does that make you angry? I, I mean, I could go through here. There's so many other things that will make you angry. Some things we're not even going to talk about because then so I'm going to have to have some counseling afterwards. But anyway, <laughs> deadly clashes erupt. There it is, Venezuela again. Anyway, you can read the paper on your own. We get angry. The idea that God would not get angry at injustice doesn't make any sense. No wonder the Bible talks about a God who is angry. I mean, quite frankly, in these cases, I want a God who's going to kick in the door and be a little bit angry about the injustice that's happening in the world. So the idea that there is a God who's angry and swishes in with his chariot and is ready to bring rebuke is actually kind of comforting because it means that God cares. He's not apathetic about the things that are happening in this world. And so sometimes we're a little uncomfortable with the idea of God being angry because we have this platonic idea that emotions are some part, part of the body and that's kind of bad. But God does not ascribe to that philosophy. Anger is a part of God's character because he cares about human beings. He cares about his creations. I mean, you think if you're a parent and again, something is happening to your child or a loved one and you don't, you're, you're not angry about that, something, something's wrong. The God who is angry. Spock. You know, remember Spock? Star Trek? How many, any Trekkers here? Star Trek? Spock is, Kobe? Yeah, kind of. Okay, you raised your hand. I didn't raise your hand. You raised your hand. It's okay. Spock, I mean, so you know Spock. You remember Star Trek? He's back now. The idea of Spock is that he is from a race of people and they have, you know, uh, learned to shun all the emotions because the emotions are weak and just operate under uh, 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 rationality. They are a people of, 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 of who are rational. Uh, but it's not rational to not have emotions, to not get angry about things. And so sometimes we think of God as Spock. You know, Spock just has no emotions, only uh, cares about that, is what, which is rational, but that doesn't make sense. Who wants a God who is Spock? By the way, Spock is a great character, one of the great TV characters of all, all time, and he's always getting in situations because he's also half, what, what is he? He's human, and what else? Valk, see, see, that was a test to see who the Trekkers are here. Mike Davis wins. He is a Trekkie. Half Vulcan half human, so he's always wrestling with this uh, dichotomy between his emotion and his uh, rational being. Anyway, who wants a God who doesn't have some emotion, who doesn't care about the suffering that happens in this world, who doesn't seek out and find injustice and come to bring rebuke to it? That's the kind of God that the Bible gives us a picture of. We also, though, are challenged by the idea of an angry God because we assume consciously or subconsciously that God gets angry for the same reasons that we do. Now, sometimes this is fine. When I, I'm, I get angry at, you know, the situation in, at the border in Venezuela, you may get, but there are some things that I get angry. I'm going to confess to you now. I get angry for some dumb things. Have you ever gotten angry for dumb things? Sometimes I get angry for science. Like I put something on a table and it falls on the floor. It's like that's called gravity, and I didn't put it properly on the table and it fell to the floor, but I'm like, oh, what happened there? Or somebody moves something that is yours, and you're like, who moved my thing? 
or somebody says something to you, we get angry for all various reasons. And so we kind of transpose that on God. Well, if I get angry about these kind of things, well, is, is, is God like me? Well, you know, just because you get angry at stupid things and, and, and that you associate anger sometimes with stupidity does not mean that is in God's uh, character. So let's not transpose our anger or our situation onto God. And so sometimes we're nervous of a God who gets angry because we think, well, he must be just like me. And this goes back to an old problem of creating God in our image. You know, we like to transpose how we think about ourselves and put that on God. Well, God must be like uh, me. But just because God gets angry doesn't mean he gets angry like I get angry or at all the things that I get angry at. Finally, we are uncomfortable with the idea that God gets angry because we assume, again, most often subconsciously, that we are actually, if we really are honest, a little bit more reasonable than God. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, there's a text in, your, in the Bible where God is like, just don't do this. I mean, my favorite one, or one of my favorites, again, mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, is that, that text where God is like, if you get mold in your house, you know, mold, the dark... If you get mold in your house, burn the house down. That's literally a command in Leviticus. If you get mold in your house, burn your house down. And it's like, what is your problem? I mean, but you think about the context. God is creating a society, a culture from, from, from being slaves for 400 years, and he's trying to teach them how to live. And one of it is just cleanliness. Mold is bad for you. We know this now. If I get mold in my house, I can go, I can have an exterminator come, or if it's a small amount, I can just spray something on it, and it's going to, you didn't have that option back uh, coming out of, of Egypt and building your, your society, and so God, just, mold spreads very quickly, you just got to burn the house down. God, it's serious. It was a serious thing, and there are many things like that in the Bible where you look and say, man, God is so reactive to this situation, what is the big deal? But Everyone down the line, there was something behind that, whether it was a health principle or was a, a social issue. Like, if you do this, it's going to hurt other people, and it's probably going to hurt yourself, and it's going to hurt your relationship with God, and so don't do this. And so we have God getting angry at things. And so sometimes we think we're more reasonable with God because it's like, yo, God, chill. I mean, what's the big deal about this? But maybe he knows more than we, are, uh, than we know. Um, secondly, on that, thinking we're more reasonable than God, there is the other side of that. And that is, sometimes we were like, God, why are you not acting? You know, I'm much more reasonable. Why have you not fixed this situation in Venezuela? Now, this was, I'm going to be honest, this is last week's paper, and I haven't checked in. Does anyone know? Are we doing better at the border in Venezuela? No, nope, not better. Okay, so God, what is the problem? See, that we're assuming we're more reasonable than God. Why don't you fix this problem down there? And so now, now again, we're back to, I'm getting a little nervous about an angry God because God doesn't seem to act in circumstances that I'm angry at, and it seems like he should be angry at too, and nothing is uh, happening. It's a good point, actually. I think it's a great point. Where is God? I mean, there's so much injustice in the world. Where is God? Why isn't he more active? And this reminds me of what, just what Jesus says, kind of confirmation of something that goes all the way back in the Bible story to the very beginning. In this issue came up, and in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus talks about it, about bad things happening in the world, and seemingly God is not active, or he's not involved in the situation, or doesn't do anything. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, 
says this. This is a parable he tells. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a man who sowed good seed in his field. So, you know, we're in New York. We don't sow seeds in fields per se, but this is an agrarian society, and so he's using the story of a man sowing seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and then he went away. So we've got some competition here. Guy goes out, he sows seed in the field, he's, he's anticipating a great harvest, but he has a, a competitor, an enemy for whatever reason, and the enemy comes and sows a seed in the field. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? And the, the owner of the field has this brilliant assertion. An enemy did this. See, he knew. An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked, do you want us to go out and pull them all up? Do you want us to go out and do the work of pulling up the, uh, the weeds? And he says, no. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The implications here are this. It's a simple implication. That there is an enemy at work. This is what Jesus is getting at. So when we look at things and we say, what's going on in the world? Why isn't God acting in circumstances? If God is good, how can he, he let a world like this keep going on when there's so much injustice, so much pain, so much suffering? Jesus' response is, yes, but we cannot forget that there is an enemy. And God is allowing that enemy to work in the world. And God limits himself from not fixing every circumstance and every situation right now. It's just the reality of the world that we live in, and it's all rooted in the idea that there is an enemy at work. There is an enemy at work in this broken world. And so, we're uncomfortable with the idea of God getting angry because we have this platonic idea of emotions. Emotions are bad. They're part of the body. We assume that God gets angry for the same reasons that we do, and we assume that we are more reasonable than God although often not seeing the big picture, including things like there is an enemy at work that God has allowed to continue to work in the universe for a very uh, specific reason, but it's happened. Now, we think back about uh, Jesus and Jesus' uh, response himself to this. You know, Jesus uh, himself got angry, so this is now God in, in human form. Jesus got angry, which implies that there is no separation between God and Jesus. Sometimes we think like Jesus does one thing and God does another thing, but there is no, there is no separation. Jesus himself got angry. Now, when I say Jesus got angry, and for those of you who have read the Bible, for you may remember a particular story, and you're thinking, that's what he's talking about, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trick you a little bit. So when I say Jesus got angry, what do you think of? Turning over the tables in the temple. Interestingly enough, both places in which that story is mentioned, it never mentions Jesus is angry which is kind of, actually, I didn't think of that until, you know, I was reading for today. No anger. I was like, oh, that's when Jesus got angry. Didn't see Jesus was angry when he turned over the temple. So China gives a whole other picture to that. Jesus, like, knew exactly, that wasn't just some Jesus wiping out. He, was, he knew exactly what he was doing and went in there, and he was going to change business. Not because he was angry, but he, was, he had a, a plan for what he was doing. Jesus, one time, we're told, did get angry. It's found in Mark chapter 3, and listen to what happened. 
Uh, Jesus went into the synagogue. We actually talked about this text a couple weeks ago in a whole different context. Jesus went into the synagogue as the gathering uh, place where everyone would come together and they would worship, particularly on the Sabbath. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now, some of the, some of the religious leaders were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So they knew the guy was there, and they were watching to see if Jesus was going to heal this guy. And so Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. See, Jesus was not afraid. Of, he, knew, he knew that this was happening, but he was not afraid. And so he invites this guy with the shriveled hand to stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, so he turns to the religious leaders now, and he says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill life? But they remained silent. They didn't answer him. They didn't say anything. So here you've got this guy who is, is, has a shriveled hand. He needs help. And the religious leaders, the, the people who are supposed to be there to help people, when asked this, they're, they're silent. And so verse 5 says that Jesus looked around at them in anger deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the religious leaders went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So the religious leaders, after seeing this, they went out and and joined together with the political party who was in power and they said, we have got to eliminate Jesus. But notice what makes Jesus angry. When people who call themselves by God's name, are silent when there are hurting and needy people in this broken world. That's what makes Jesus angry. He turned to them in anger, injustice, suffering, and nobody, including people who call themselves by God's name, are willing to stand up and say what's wrong and right. That is what makes Jesus angry. This leads us back to our text of emphasis today in verse 17 of Isaiah 66. There are those people. God is going to come in and he's going to be on his whirlwind and he's got a chariot and he's going to bring rebuke and he's going to bring justice. Who is it? Who is it who he's bringing this judgment on? It's those people who consecrate and purify themselves. They get themselves all religious up. And then they end up though going to the garden where they're going to worship other gods. They're going to worship themselves. They're going to work, worship political power. They're going to take care of uh, number one first. They're going to follow after the one who does detestable things. That's what Isaiah 66 verse 17 says. See, Jesus, Jesus is going to bring judgment on those who call themselves by God's name but are acting without justice, who aren't helping the hurt and, hurting and need, not, not just helping but are silent when injustice is happening. That's what makes Jesus angry. Ultimately, I think the idea that God gets angry makes a lot of sense. How could you not see injustice in this broken world? To your children, as a parent, you think your child is facing injustice, you're not going to get angry? You're just going to be apathetic? No, that's not how it works. You're going to be upset. You're going to be angry. The idea that God gets angry makes a lot of sense. But here's the problem. 
What happens when God is angry with you? What happens when you're the one who has acted with injustice? When you're the one has, has been the one who was silent when you needed to stand up and say something? What happens then? And the problem is that deep down inside, or maybe not so deep down, you know, I know, that we've acted with injustice, that we haven't done what is right, that there have been times in our lives when we have been following other gods. And the implication here is very clear that, unfortunately, the way things work, and this is just the way things work, and we know this better now today than we've ever known before, that you, do, you act one time with injustice, and you are branded with that for life, right? You do, th- you do something on the internet one time now, and everybody knows, and it's not going to be forgotten. Somebody is going to screen capture that, and it is going to be there for all time, <laughs> for the rest of human history. Now, back in, 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 in my day, before social media, this wasn't true. There is a picture, there's a rumored picture of me with ridiculous hair. Very long. But because of the internet, thank God there was no internet in 1989. That picture will never see the light of day. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about, that picture. Only to say that things that happen now, we know what it's like to be branded for life with something, okay? Because now you do something, the internet gives you, it is there for eternity. The reality is, according to the Bible, one, one time you act with an injustice and you are branded for life as being against God, as aligning yourself with the enemy. One time, one time, you're aligned with the enemy. And so all of us find ourselves on the side of the enemy. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and find themselves short of the glory of God. That's the problem we're in. I mean, God has a right to be angry with every one of us. If he's against injustice, which we're already saying, that's a good thing. I want a God who's going to kick in the door to injustice and be angry and come on his chariot with wind behind him and all the drama that he could possibly have to, to rebuke injustice. But what happens when I've been the unjust in, in one? And Romans 3 says we have all been unjust, and once you're branded with injustice once, you're branded with injustice for life. <laughs> what hope do we have then? Is God angry with with me for eternity? Romans chapter 3, that same passage that said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have acted with injustice. All have been selfish. All have followed our own gods. All have followed ourselves. All have been looking for power or glory or whatever in our experience and done things that we should not have done and therefore are branded for life. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Romans 3.25 said, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by those people who have been branded as enemies of God. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. See, God cares about the right thing. He cares about, because he's got an enemy Keep in mind, and the enemy is accusing him always of doing the wrong thing. He's got an enemy, and so God cares about righteousness. God did this, sent Jesus, the shed blood, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, which is patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. The implication is this, you know, Jesus comes, 
but all the injustice that had happened before Jesus, God left ultimately, eternally unpunished. He didn't bring rebuke on, on all that situation yet. So when Jesus comes, though, he places all the rebuke, the past human history, and all the rebuke that is to come on Jesus. God had patient uh, self-control, didn't punish every act of wrongdoing from humanity, but when God himself came in human form, he was to take all the punishment from all the wrongdoings in the world on himself. Romans 3, 21 says this, But now, apart from the law of righteousness, of which the law and the prophets testify, of which Isaiah testifies. This righteousness, this, this goodness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. So everyone has been accounted as an enemy of God because if you, one time you act with injustice, you've kind of aligned yourself with the enemy. It only takes once to do, do something that's going to affect your life for all eternity and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now all have access to to this hope that comes through Jesus. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. So there's all. There's all have sinned, but all who believe. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Everybody's in trouble, but everybody has hope. Everybody's in trouble, but every single person has hope because all who believe have access to the one who takes away the sin of the world. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul again in 2 Corinthians says these words, If anyone is in Christ, and in Christ just means you embrace God's work in Jesus. You recognize what he's done, and you're going to align himself with that. You're going to, I, I was aligned before by my, my bad behavior or my selfishness or my acts of injustice or my silence when I should have st stood up, but now I'm going to align myself with Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Jesus not counting people's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the goodness and righteousness of God. This is the best news you are ever going to hear. We have all consciously, subconsciously, or both aligned ourselves with the enemy at some point in our experience, but the great hope is that we have an opportunity to make a new choice. And as we embrace the work that Jesus has done on our behalf, we have hope for a new a future. As the new heavens and the new earth, Isaiah says, I will make, you will endure with me. You will be with me, God says. So your name will endure for the descendants to come. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Thank God for an angry God. A God who cares about justice. 
who cares about a broken world, who is not going to indefinitely stand up. At some point, by the way, that enemy that's working against God is going to come to doom. We're told that. We're promised that. Things are not going to stay the way they are forever. At some point, the enemy is going to come to an end, and all things, all things are going to be made new. Until that point, we have the opportunity now as individuals and as a community to embrace God's work in Jesus to transform our lives, to, to, to be counted not as God's enemy, but as God's friend. And so, as a community, may we embrace the angry God, the God of justice, the God who is not apathetic, the God who cares And may we, in Jesus, align ourselves with him by accepting this great, great news. God, who had no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Amen.